as you guys all know me pretty much, you know that I'm an insufferable Patriots fan. I had to introduce the West Bend site to that this morning. It was a lot of fun. As one of my coworkers said when I came into her office like this, she's like, wow, Nate, that's subtle. So... <laughs> It's not intentional. That is all coffee right there. My wife poured me coffee this morning. I drank all that, and then I went to Starbucks, so I'm a little jittery. Well, um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Nate Tovey. Um, my wife, Catherine, and my two kids, Madeline and Caleb, we all attend here. I've uh, been he- going here since the start of Kettlebrook Jackson, and prior to that, we were at West Bend. Uh, we moved to Wisconsin in 2008. Um, and uh, I think one of the things about me that'll that'll come out in the sermon is that I'm very outdoorsy. I love fishing, especially fly fishing, camping, rafting, kayaking, hunting, um, whatever. I'll pretty much do everything. I will not rock climb though, because God gave me a rugby body, not a scamper up walls body. So I am not able to do that. Um, recently, a friend of mine, we were having coffee together in the morning, and he says, hey, do you, do you like preaching? I, I thought about it for um, a second, and I had to say yes and no, which he was skeptical of. That's like a non-answer answer. But I said yes, because when I do this, I feel like God works through me for his glory. He teaches me in this. He um, helps write the sermon, or he writes the sermon and gives me the words to say, and that is amazing to do, to be a vessel for him. Uh, I said no because there's a lot of responsibility that comes with teaching. Uh, I take it very seriously. Um, And I feel like if I do not investigate my heart uh, in the areas that we're going to talk about today, then um, that's unfair. I'm just a big jerk standing up in front of you. So I take that very seriously. So with that, I appreciate this opportunity, and let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you so much for this morning, for time with my family. Uh, Give me the words to say. May everything I say be pleasing to you. May it glorify your son, Jesus. May it glorify you. And may um, the hearts of people be opened up to something that maybe you want to say through the story of Stephen. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look at um, Acts chapter 6, verses 8, through the entire chapter 7. So it's a lot. I'll let you get there. I don't know what page it is in in your Bibles. Uh, I forgot to do that. Sorry. Um, But we're going to look at a man named Stephen, the first Christian martyr, which is just a fancy way of saying someone killed for their faith. Um, And we're going to try and pull a couple key takeaways out of this story, some applications for our lives today. We're going to take a look at what it might look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to look at what it might be like to resist the Holy Spirit. Um, or be in opposition, maybe is another way of putting it, to the Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to have two questions at the end and some thoughts to leave us with as we kind of go out. So a little bit of context for where we are in the story of Stephen. Um, as you heard Simon talk about from the graphic Bible, Stephen is killed for his faith. And that's because Jesus, um, at the beginning of Acts, um, tells his disciples to go out and make more disciples. And then he promises the Holy Spirit. And then at the fe- Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes on the, the apostles and the believers, and empowers them to do many great things. To do that empowerment of the Holy Spirit through God's power, they are in Jerusalem preaching and teaching and performing miracles and healings. And so many people are starting to come to the faith uh, in Jerusalem. Many people are coming to God because of his spirit. And um, this, this grabs the attention of the, of the priests and the religious rulers of the time. It does not go unnoticed. And 
They begin to oppose the apostles, and so much so that by verse 33 of chapter 5, um, you can read that um, the priests and Sadducees have already decided to kill the apostles. They've put it in their mind they're going to kill them. They're talked off the ledge one time, but they've got it in their mind to kill them. And uh, the apostles still plow forward. And we're going to meet, we're going to understand why, because of people filled by the Holy Spirit. And one of those people filled by the Holy Spirit is Stephen in chapter 6. So I'm going to cheat just a little bit and go back. Um, as we meet Stephen, um, what's happening is, is that there's believers in the church that are complaining that there's discrimination between Christ, uh, Greek and Hebrew believers in the distribution of food to the widows. And so the apostles wisely decide that they shouldn't spend their time worrying about the distribution of food. They need to focus on the word and prayer. And so they need to appoint some, some other men full of faith in the Holy Spirit to go ahead and take care of the tactical work. Um, that's really wise of them. That's what we do today in the church. That's, that's why Ryan does what he does. And Roger and Gary are back there. They're the sound and tech guys. That's their strength. But, but Ryan doesn't do what they do. And, and um, maybe someday Gary will get up here and do what Ryan does. I don't know. <laughs> um, but that's, that's, that's the parsing of the responsibilities, and that's smart. Um, so they appoint some men to take care of this. In verse 3, they are men full of wisdom. And the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 5, they choose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, it says. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a little illustration of what it might be like to be full of the Holy Spirit. Because you're gonna, you'll hear about this quite a bit today in the sermon. And that is um, an example from my outdoors times. It's, it's, it might be a poor example, but it's what I got, so we're going with it. And um, when I turned 40 last summer, um, I did a big trip to Alaska fly fishing with my buddies. And one of the trips that we did was a five-day unguided, so we're guided ourselves. We did it ourselves, float and fly fish down the National Wild and Scenic Golcana River uh, way up in Alaska. And um, <clears throat> the river holds the western hemisphere's uh, northernmost rainbow trout, so beautiful trout. And um, there's a picture, I think, of us uh, in the boat with all our gear. So there, there we are. You can see that all the gear and the fishing equipment and food and drinks that you need for five days of being in the middle of nowhere, by the way. If you get in trouble, it's a helicopter ride out. It's very expensive. Had a satellite phone. You know, big deal. Um, and there we are. And you can see kind of the rapids that we have in the river, class three, class two. Um, and the boat is heavy. With all of us in the boat, you know, a bunch of guys my size, um, and then all our gear probably was, was in the thousands of pounds. Um, and so... For the most part, we were good to go. I could get through the rapids, but the boat was a monstrosity to move. I really had to pull, really had to pull. And that's fine until you get to about halfway through the trip. There's a canyon. And in that canyon, you're starting to get into class four rapids and greater. Two four-foot waterfalls, big rocks. If you go online to YouTube, you can watch funny videos. It's not funny. It's kind of funny now. Watch videos of people getting caught on those rocks and dumping their boats and stuff like that. But in Alaska, you dump your boat. It's very dangerous. The water is like four degrees uh, warmer than ice, and so you have just under a minute to get out. So that is an example. That is a picture from the canyon, somebody else boating through. You can barely see it. I'll move out of the way. But you can see that the water is, is way up. And so I was scared out of my, my mind, and we had to go down this canyon. So what did we do? Well, there's a portage there. And so in order to make our vessel movable, in order to make our raft able and nimble enough to go through that canyon, we had to take all our junk and get it out of the boat. It's too heavy to move. Had to just take all these. These are the actual bags out of the boat. 
And I think being filled by the Holy Spirit is a little bit like that. Jesus comes into our life, and he takes all our junk and takes it out so that he can navigate the boat. And we were able to navigate the boat only because it was nimble, only because it was then able to be used, and then you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we, here's a picture of us at the bottom. Um, you can see the boat is empty. We're really happy because we lived. <laughs> I thought we were going to die. And, uh, and so there we are celebrating. So it was a great time. And um, it's just an example. It's just an illustration. It's not exact, but it might make you think about how we have to be emptied by Jesus in order to be filled by the Spirit. So as we get to verse 7, we're going to start to see that um, the word of God was spreading in Jerusalem. Even a large number of priests uh, became obedient to the faith. So you've got all these priests that have already decided to kill Stephen or the apostles, excuse me, the apostles. And, and now some of their own are coming to the faith in Jesus. So you can imagine they're pretty ticked right about now. And um, so you have this tension in the city. You have this tension. It's like a powder keg. And this is where our stage is set. And so I'm going to read in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So we're going to stop right there for a second. Stephen, a man full of faith and full of God's power, who wouldn't want to be like that, right? He's out there performing miracles and signs, and in putting himself out there in the public, he's, he's kind of rubbing up against opposition, and that's going to happen. Uh, he rubs up against these uh, freed slaves, and um, they argue with him, but they can't stand up against the spirit by which he spoke. They cannot stand up against the wisdom um, that he has. So what do they do when you can't, you can't beat them? They just like get people to lie about them. So the lies are, one, that Moses is being blasphemed, and two, God is being blasphemed. And that, those are pretty big charges. That's uh, big enough charges to get you put in front of the Sanhedrin, right? Um, again, they do the same thing. They produce false witnesses to bring false charges against him. And I think this is a really important part of the message, so I'm going to just kind of glom onto this a little bit because it becomes evident in how Stephen responds to their charges that we understand what the charges are. are. Uh, they're, they're, they're charging um, Stephen with blaspheming the temple and blaspheming uh, Moses, um, and these are two very important pillars um, in the Jewish faith at the time. And uh, they were pillars that the, that the leaders took a lot of pride in and were really dependent on for their spiritual identity. So for them, worshiping God meant following a, a bunch of outward rules um, and regulations of outward actions. Um, and God can only be related to when, when you're in the temple. God can't be related to outside of the temple. This is the temple is where he lives, is where he resides, basically. Um, Stephen knows better. He knows that God is everywhere and that you can worship him in spirit. And it's not dependent on a building or a location. He also knows that as for rules, he probably remembers the words of Jesus when he chastised the Pharisees for washing the outside of the cup. In other words, doing all these things to the outside for appearances 
but never really taking care of the inside, the things that come from within the heart. And so he knows that life is and worshiping God is not about a temple or following ex- external sets of rules. So let's read Stephen's response in 615. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I don't know what that means, but I, if someone's face starts looking like the face of an angel, I think you should listen to them. It seems like God's about to do something pretty impressive. But um, we're going to start in chapter 7 here. Then the high priest asked him, are, you, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while still in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran, leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Okay, so this is a lot. I timed it. It would take the entire sermon to read this entire thing, so I'm going to skip through some of this. I know it's going to kill some of you to to kind of gloss over it. But here, let me try and give you the cliff notes. Um, Basically, Stephen is going to go into the history of Israel in which the Sanhedrin would be totally familiar but he's using it to dismantle their two big arguments against them. Um, if you read in verses 4 through 19, God comes to Abraham, promises him the promised land, creates the covenant of circumcision, outward circumcision with Abraham, tells him to move to a new land. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob uh, fathers the 12 um, um, tribes of Israel. We also have Joseph and his move to his, his enslavement in in Egypt, and then he becomes powerful, and he brings um, all of Abraham's people into Egypt. And then just as God predicted, um, a pharaoh that no longer remembers Joseph comes into power and enslaves the Jewish people. And this is where we find Moses, okay? So we're going to start in verse 20. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. Okay, so this is the Moses that they're claiming that Stephen is blaspheming. Um, Moses is chosen to be Israel's leader, and he's going to free them um, from Egypt. So I'm going to start in verse 35. So I'm going to skip over some stuff. And what the cliff notes is is that essentially Moses is born. He realizes that he's an Israelite. Um, He avenges um, the mistreatment um, of an Egyptian, of one of the Israelites. He kills the Egyptian. That is found out. He knows the gig is up. Now that he's been discovered, he runs from Egypt for 40 years. And while he's away, after 40 years, God comes to him in a burning bush. I know it's a famous story, the burning bush in the wilderness. And the angel of the Lord tells Moses, I'm going to use you to free my people, go back to Egypt. So as you start in verse 35, so 735, this is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel, though the, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Argument number one, dismantled. Moses, you're standing by him. You can go with that one. Well, you rejected him. One down. Then we're going to go to verses 48 through 50 in Stephen's response. These are all Stephen's words, and he's quoting some from the, from, um, the prophet Isaiah, too. Um, I'm actually going to read in 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. 
having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the, mo- the Most High God does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Second point, he brings up the fact that God himself said, how are you going to build me a house? I made all this. This is all my hand. This is all my doing. God does not live solely in this tabernacle, in this temple. So Stephen adeptly and cleverly dismantles the charges against him, and in a way he's just tearing down those pillars one by one. Um, and he's reminding the, the, the leaders that their own people had rejected those two things, or had rejected Moses, and that God does not live in the temple. And those are some hard truths for them to take, but they probably are familiar with these scriptures. So if Stephen threw a jab here, he's about to hit him with a roundhouse, okay? Here comes the knockout punch. We'll start in verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. Pretty harsh. Stiff-necked, which is stubborn. uncircumcised hearts, which means outwardly you've been circumcised, but you don't act or behave or believe any differently than those people around you that are unbelievers. Uh, Uncircumcised ears. Stephen is saying that they're deaf to the truth. He's getting to the fact and the truth that although they follow this ritual of outward circumcision that was given to them so long ago, Nothing had changed in their hearts, and they really aren't set apart for for God. In Colossians 2.11, it says, In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. And I'm going to put forth the idea that the circumcision done by Christ is that cutting out of the sin in our hearts. Or maybe said another way, Christ coming in and throwing our bags out of our vessel so he can use us. That's the circumcision that really counts. Then Stephen goes on even farther to point out that Israel has a history of resisting and killing God's prophets, all of them, (laughs) even those that predicted the coming of the righteous one, and, hey, they even killed him. You always resist the Holy Spirit. That was a big exclamation point in there. The irony, right? Here Stephen is a layman. He's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Here these guys are. They are the religious leaders of the time, and all they do is resist the Holy Spirit. So Stephen's response is like a match that just got lit. And so the leaders up until this point, they had previously decided to kill the prophets, and now they're furious at Stephen. We're going to read what happens here because Stephen is about to take that match and put it on the fuse. When they, Starting on verse 54, When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses, 
laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. When they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. They're furious at him. One version of my Bible, different translation, says they're shaking their fists at him. They're so angry. They just can't win that argument. It's like that one person in your family that's like the lawyer. You know, they use all your words against you. They remember everything from three months ago. They parse your words, and then they just grind you down until you finally give in. You know that feeling. I know you do. That is kind of what they've got going on, and they just can't beat him. They just can't beat him in the argument, and so they're just furious. And so what do they do? When he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, that would be like the worst form of blasphemy those guys could handle. And they just lose their minds. I forget what the illustrative Bible said, but Simon had a great um, quote in there. Now I'm forgetting it, but it was a great way of looking at it. They just collectively lose it. This whips them into a fervor. They rush at Stephen. They drag him outside, and they stone him to death. And stoning, by the way, I'm not going to go too many details because we have kids, is a very unpleasant way to die. They don't use a great big stone that makes it quick, if you know what I mean. We see that Stephen here has time to pray. And let's see what he says. Um, He has time enough to cry out to Christ. And then very much like Jesus on the cross, he asked that God not hold this sin against them. And then he was killed. If that's not God in someone's life, I I don't know what is. I mean, I, I know in America and in a lot of other countries, one of the things that we value so much is justice. And we, this is an unjust killing. We would want to have our just desserts for those people. We would want to have justice, and justice would say that this sin should be held against them. But he's asking that it not be held against them, and that can only be Christ. And Christ did the same thing when he was on the cross. He said, if you remember, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It would be so very, very difficult to ask for forgiveness to people that are painfully killing you. But he's able to do that because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so with that, Stephen dies and becomes the first Christian martyr. So there's a ton in this passage. Um, We could go lots of different routes here. I'm just going to leave us with two questions and some thoughts on this. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, when I was going through this, it's somewhat of a difficult passage to relate to. You're, I'm not going to be drugged in front of a council to defend my faith anytime soon. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be stoned to death for my faith. Um, that's not going to happen in our context. There are people in the world that do pay a dear price for their faith through abuse and through, yes, death. But in our context, that's not really going to happen. I mean, the worst thing that's going to happen is we're going to get an awkward social con- you know, conversation with our neighbors, right? Like, that's the worst thing that's going to happen. The guy at Target's going to say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. So that's, that's the worst that we get. Um, by the way, if you don't like anything that I say here today, just go ahead. There's an email address you can um, email your questions to. It's ryanlatour at gmail.com. Yeah. <laughs> that happy holidays one got you. Go ahead. Um, the first question that I have is, are, are we resisting the Holy Spirit? Or in another way, um, are we, we resisting the gospel of Jesus? This story is a great example of different responses that we could have to the gospel. Um, if you notice throughout the entire passage, and we, we had to gloss over some of it, but God has continually reached out to his people to get their attention. And the God that we serve is not a distant, uncaring God. Jesus is not distant and uncaring. He 
He is personal, and he wants to know all of us, and he's calling out to us. And in this passage, he sends Abraham, and he sends Moses, and he helps Joseph, and he sends prophets, and he finally sends Jesus, knowing full well that when he sends Jesus, Jesus is probably going to end up like all the other prophets, which is killed. And he sends them because he wants to know them. And if you're here today and you don't actively follow Jesus, you don't know about this, I'm just going to go ahead and say that I think God is reaching out to you. And it's those little quiet moments, those little twinges in your heart when you hear from God. He is reaching out to you. He's calling to you because he was willing to send Jesus for you. He was willing to do that. Don't refuse him. See, we all have these bags, right? We all have this. And the, and the beauty of Christ is, is that we can't empty our vessel of these bags ourselves. And we're going down the river, and we're crashing into rocks, and we're hitting the walls, and we're getting hung up because we got all this junk in our bags and they're too heavy to get rid of. But Jesus is the only one that can get rid of them. Jesus is the only one that can empty your vessel so that you can be used. And he's calling out to you, and I would just say, listen to him today. Another big way that we resist the Spirit is kind of like how the Sanhedrin did. We're doing it in order to protect someone, something. We're trying to protect something in our control. I think that the Sanhedrin, they were protecting the religious institution. They had, a, they had a power base, a control of a religious institution, and they were trying to protect that. And we're, we're probably not protecting a religious institution. We're probably not protecting a, that type of power base. But we all have control and power base issues, right? There might be things that we don't want to give up to God because one of the things about saying yes to Jesus is, is he takes care of our bags, but then he wants lordship of our life. And that's really hard, even for Christ followers. Like, I don't want to have to answer to anybody. It's kind of this natural bent that we have. So maybe control is just situations in our lives that we want to manage ourselves. Uh, maybe it's our, our money. Maybe it's our family and friendships. Or maybe it's just like uh, with all the resources that we have, maybe it's just I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I've got the ability to do that. And for the most part, we can do all that. We have the resources. This one's a tough one for me. I'm a, I was thinking of a story about this. I, I go back to my first days of being in Boston, and my first job as an executive, entry-level executive in retail. wasn't even married yet. And uh, I was working a lot of hours, taking a lot of abuse, weekends, nights. And I wasn't making that much. And Boston is a really expensive city to live in. I mean, we have to have like a championship parade like every year. Do you know how to pay for that? Okay, that was it. That was it. I swear that was it. That's not, that's it. <laughs> that was it. And so I was at Dunkin' Donuts in front of the Park Street Church in downtown Boston with my dear friend Pat Ray, who's in my wedding, and he's trying to convince me about having a servant heart about giving of my money to God. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm taking all this. This is, this is my money. Like, I'm working hard. God wants what? He wants how much? And I was being stiff-necked and stubborn. And I was digging in. And Pat, to his credit, just a great friend, he just pushes his chair back from the table at Dunkin' Donuts. And he just yells really, almost really loud to me. He's like, you know what, Toby? God doesn't want your stupid money. And I'm like, by then, everybody in Dunkin' Donuts is like, what's going on over here? And he says, he just wants your heart. And I was like, whoa. That cuts. That cuts. 
I wasn't ready to give up control there. And it took time. It took a lot of time, and I worked through it, and there was other instances in my life. But I'm going to read Psalm 95, 7 and 8. Oh, that you would listen to his voice today, the Lord says. Don't harden your hearts as Israel did at Meribah, as they did at Massa in the wilderness. God also says in Hebrews 12:25, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. We only get so many chances. He's calling. We need to listen. Number two. This will be the final one. I got my watch on timing this, Ryan. Are we ready to mount a vigorous defense of our faith? And this is more for those of us that claim to know Christ as our Savior. But we need to be ready for this. Um, <clears throat> it's not probably going to happen in front of a giant council of authorities or, or political um, hoopla in front of Congress. But we are going to be questioned. If our, if our lives are changed and we are out there in the public with our faith, um, we're going to get questioned. And I think we can learn a lot from Stephen in all of this, how he defended himself. If you read back in 610, Stephen um, was arguing with the freedmen, and they couldn't argue with the wisdom that he had or the spirit by whom he spoke. And in verse 6-5, we also read that Stephen is ver- full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put the idea out there that in order to adeptly defend our faith, we need to be connected to Christ. And Steve Farina talked about this a few weeks ago. He had the light bulb up here with the, with the power source and the cord. In order for that light bulb to work, we need to be connected. And do we fully understand what faith we have in order to share it with others? That's, that's a big question. Um, it needs to be more than just an intellectual belief that we have, and we need to experience the power of God to change our lives. Because if not, I think sometimes Christians, we can be really guilty of just being like the Sanhedrin here. If we don't have anything different to offer, then we're really just offering another system, right? And what I mean by that is, is that if you don't have a different life, if Jesus hasn't changed your life so you handle your relationships differently, you love, you sacrifice, um, you handle your priorities, whatever, stewarding your money, all those things, if there's no change and your friends and family see that Jesus doesn't do anything different for you, how are they going to think that Jesus is going to do anything different for them? It just becomes a system with a different label on it. But as a Christ follower, if you've had that change, it's very difficult for someone to argue with that. So let's make sure it's not just intellectual, but we allow God, that lordship, to go into our hearts to actually change us. One thing that people can't debate with you about is the change that has happened in your life. We can debate the historical record. We can debate fossils. We can debate morality. We can debate all these things that get debated. Um, but they cannot debate the changes in your life that Jesus has done. I'm gonna, I have two examples from, I'm going to say, our church and the church we attended in Seattle. I had a friend named Will. He told me one time, he's like, hey, man, I was wealthy. I had everything. But I was miserable. I was addicted to drugs, losing my spouse. I kind of wanted to end it. And one night on a drug binge, I was laying on a bed full of all these expensive guns I had purchased for myself, and I kind of wanted to use one, but I didn't. I didn't. And then I went to celebrate recovery, and I met Jesus Christ. And now I'm completely different. I'm completely different. And I'm helping people that were as hopeless as I was being used by God. If you met Will before and after, you would not recognize Will. Totally different. Here's another one. I was completely addicted to pornography. It was leading me down a path of self-destruction and loathing. It had control of me. And no matter how hard I tried, I could not kick the habit ultimately. Then God, working deep in my heart, changed me, 
Jesus cleaned me deep from within my heart in a way that no other thing or person I had tried could. I'm no longer addicted and completely different. Guys, there's other stories in our church that are just as powerful as those two. Miracles, etc. And people, they can't argue with that. When God steps into your life and does something, something so radical to change you, um, it's very difficult to, to debate that. People cannot out-debate the changes that have happened in your life. And those changes, they happened not because you opposed the Holy Spirit like the Sanhedrin did, but you said yes to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes the difference. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the story of Stephen and what we can learn from him and his example. My prayer, God, is that our hearts would be like that of Stephen and not that of the Sanhedrin, that we would not resist you, not resist your call, not resist the Holy Spirit, but soften our hearts and allow you to do the work of carrying our baggage for us. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.